Hi everyone. Today's reading is from Genesis 4, 1 to 10. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. And I just want to begin again by just thanking you for staying in touch with us and with each other. I think during this time when we continue to not be able to meet in person, um, it's been really important that you've been reaching out to each other and letting each other know that you're there for each other, uh, no matter what. Uh, so thank you for joining us each week as we narrate the story together that we want to, uh, to grip our lives and the story we want to live by. On that note, uh, we are in our fourth part of our series in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. We're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which we said is like a sort of a, a prelude uh, that sets up so many um, themes that are going to be dealt with throughout the rest of Genesis and actually throughout the rest of the Bible. Let me read those first couple of verses again. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. This detail is really important because in Israel's culture, in, in fact, in Middle Eastern culture in general, the eldest son had certain advantages. One of them being that the eldest son was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance compared to their siblings. The firstborn was also, at one point, given the privilege of serving as a priest in the temple of the Lord. Or again, when Israel comes to that point where they want to choose for themselves a king, the person they look for first as a prospective king is the family's eldest son, the firstborn. So there was this way of organizing their society that gave an advantage to the eldest son. And of course, as the eldest son of my own family, I really like the sound of this. The firstborn is an important concept in Judaism. But it's interesting. 
when you look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and various other critical moments in the biblical plotline, we discover that they revolve around a reversal of this societal structure and social ordering and things. The patriarch Isaac reverses his privilege by giving the eldest son's blessing to his youngest son Jacob instead of Esau. Do you remember how symbolically, instead of placing his right hand on his eldest son, he crosses his hands over each other in order to bless his youngest son with his right hand instead? Jacob himself, who receives that blessing, then goes on to privilege his younger son, Joseph, who is chosen to save many from a terrible famine. Fast forward a few centuries and Israel is in slavery in Egypt. Now Moses is Aaron's younger brother. But Moses, not Aaron, is the one chosen by God to lead Israel out of captivity and becomes not just any prophet, but he is considered Israel's archetypal prophet. Fast forward again, and the prophet Samuel comes to the family of Jesse to anoint a king. And they bring out for him, of course, the eldest son. And all the other sons. But we're told the Lord passes over them. <laughs> Finally, Samuel asks, have you any other sons around here? And they reply, well, yes, we have David. He's the eighth and the youngest son, but he's out in the fields tending the sheep. What would you possibly want with him? In their society, David had no status. But Samuel says, bring him in from the fields. And he anoints David as king. David is chosen over his older brothers to become not just any king, but in Israel's estimation, the archetypal king. So this is a common theme in the Old Testament, that there's a recognition of the societal structure that gives this advantage to someone just because of their gender and birth order in their family. But at these key moments in the biblical plotline, we find the societal advantage being subverted. Given the importance placed on birth order in Israel's culture, when we read in this chapter that we're looking at this morning that, that later she gave birth to his brother Abel. This is not an insignificant or minor detail. It actually instructs us on how we might read what comes next. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offerings, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And so we're introduced in this early prehistory, in this prelude, we're introduced to the God who is not bound by our society's structures and expectations, who lifts up those without status, the ones whose society marginalizes and were in fact in the margins of Israel's society. God brings them to the center of his story. And there's also something very personal here. This God lifts up particular people. The relationship between God and these people is, is not dictated by systemic issues and societal norms. So it's important, I think, 
not only to think about when we do think about the, the faceless masses of the oppressed and the, the marginalized or, or think only in terms of systems but to allow our eyes to focus on particular people who in particular is marginalized who in particular is overlooked and where are those particular people in your own life are they on the outer margins kept at arm's length how are we working to bring those particular people in from the margins to the center i'm talking about people whose names and faces we know whose voice and intonation we recognize and abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock the lord looked with favor on abel and his offering all our efforts to bring people we know from the margin to the center are an emulation of this god if we read this from the youngest son's perspective but now let me read this story from the older brother's perspective i'm an older brother myself uh, my brother and i uh, we went to the same state school around the corner from where we where we live but my sister who is 10 years younger went to a very exclusive private school uh, which was also attended by, I think, one of the Sultan of Brunei's daughters, and I think Madonna looked at it for her kid as well. So my sister had a completely different set of opportunities. In the UK, they started to try to adjust for this education gap, and universities started giving preferences to kids who may have achieved the same grades, but who went to state schools instead of private schools. At first, my sister, as her 18-year-old self, felt this was really unfair, but after some reflection, she realized that the kid who managed to get those grades in the local state school would have been running circles around her if given the opportunity she'd been given at the school she attended. So this sort of affirmative action could actually help compensate for certain economic disadvantages. A large study was done in Chicago where 36,000 job applications were sent in. The profiles on the applications were the same, except for one small detail. Half of them had the name John, and the other half of those applications had the name Jamal. Both applications received callbacks, but with this one discrepancy. John received about 30% more callbacks than Jamal. This is why affirmative action can be an important way of circumventing people's prejudice. But there does come a point where we recognize that despite all of our best efforts there are vast inequalities which exist and will still exist no matter how hard we may work there are physical advantages you know if i was taller apparently i'd be earning uh, five to ten thousand dollars more a year or maybe advantages in personality types so i'm told by introverts who often find themselves in an extrovert world we have advantages in upbringing and advantages over others in talent to compose, to paint, to do business, to write. Some people are genetically disposed to live longer than others. It all seems so arbitrary and unfair. Unfair in so many ways, we can't even number them, let alone try to compensate for them. And who's responsible? Well, if we read this story from the elder son's perspective, it appears that God 
for no reason in particular, chooses to show favor to Abel. It seems arbitrary. There's nothing here to really disqualify Cain. There, there really isn't anything here about God preferring cowboys over farmers. John Calvin, the reformer, and others after him, have tried to explain this by, by maligning Cain, giving reasons for his rejection, and, and they try to introduce a sort of moral dimension into the incident. But when Calvin or anyone else does this, they claim to know more than the text. And so perhaps like the narrator, we should also resist attempts to explain it. God is free, apparently. And he is the one who sets up the parameters of our reality. And in this instance, shows favor to Abel, the younger brother. And this is a theme that is also revisited many times throughout the Bible. Uh, we might think of Job, who experiences terrible, devastating life events. And he feels God is ultimately responsible or stands behind these events somehow. And what's amazing in that story is that at no point does God wash his hands of responsibility. God speaks instead about setting the stars in the sky, establishing the animal kingdom, setting the boundaries of the sea. Essentially, we're presented with the God who establishes the boundaries of our reality. And so in some sense does stand behind the ordeals and suffering of Job. The author of Ecclesiastes also makes this point over and over again. One man suffers, another man is successful. Sometimes the righteous prosper, sometimes they don't. The wicked will get their comeuppance, but sometimes they get what the righteous deserve. It all seems so arbitrary, and the boundaries of this arbitrary reality again, Ecclesiastes recognizes with Job. These boundaries of our reality have been set by God. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, this story of Cain and Abel expresses the haunting presence of God, known to every brother or sister or neighbor who is enraged by life's unfairness, where God doesn't seem like a friend, and yet he is not quite an enemy. It's as if he were leaving it up to us. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain is given two options. One is to give in to his resentment, which is pictured as a wild animal crouching at his door, ready to devour him. A sort of animal yearning for destructiveness that will destroy both the victim and the perpetrator. Nietzsche, <laughs> if I can bring him up, Nietzsche talks a lot about resentment. Actually, he uses the French, the French word resentment, not, not because he was pretentious, but because it has a fuller meaning. It's more than mere jealousy or resentment. It involves a kind of neurosis which wants to inflict pain upon the self as well as upon the other. But long before Nietzsche, Genesis has discerned this destructive force of resentment and knows 
that we can be torn apart by that power at work in our own lives. But Cain has a choice. He doesn't have to live in this resentment. You have a choice, God says, if you do what is right. What is right here? You know, in Jesus' teaching, there's often a brother present somewhere in the vicinity, somewhere within earshot, somewhere nearby. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Surely Jesus is echoing the story of Cain and Abel there. Why at that moment of religious sacrifice are we trying, well, as we're trying to focus on God, must Jesus turn our attention to the brother or the sister, to the neighbor? Or again, Jesus said, there was a certain man who had two sons. Why must a certain man always have two sons? Why not only one? Why not only me? In Jesus' story of the prodigal, the older son is not quite a murderer, but he smells the blood and his father knows it. And the eldest son is far from his father's heart, even though he's just a few steps outside his father's house. But neither the God of Genesis chapter 4, nor Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, ask very much but then again they ask for everything they ask for reconciliation and in a world where estrangement and resentment seems to be so normal it seems so ordinary routine it's, it's just accepted this is the way it is and in a world that wants to keep it that way. Then to ask for reconciliation is to ask for everything. That there are forces at work in this world working to keep us apart. And people will hate you for trying to build a bridge across the chasm to your enemy. If you don't believe me, tweet something conciliatory about a perceived enemy and see what happens. The world is always finding reasons not to be together. But again, as the church, as the body of Christ, we're faced, we're faced with the God who is interested in the personal, relational dimension. The same God who interrupts the way society might advantage and disadvantage people and, and will often reverse the societal expectations. The biggest reversal that God makes there that same God asks us to reconcile, not to resent, but to reconcile with those 
who may always have an advantage in this life over us. God doesn't ask much, but then again, he asks for everything. To recognize the primacy of our brother, our sister, our neighbor. To recognize the primacy of the brother in the face of God. That is everything. <laughs>